Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll and Jurassic World Dominion, the final installment in the newest trilogy of this classic series. Hits theaters this weekend. It's got the cast from the 1993 original movie. It's also got a bunch of new dinosaurs. And today, I've got paleontologist Steve Brusat, who consulted on the film and helped director Colin Trevorrow and his crew bring the new dinos to life. Steve describes how much scientists have learned about dinosaurs in the 30 years since the original Jurassic Park movie hit the theaters and how much they've discovered in the last 10 years alone thanks to all the fossils being unearthed mostly in China and Argentina. Steve's talking about the new species that appear in Jurassic World Dominion and why they have feathers and in some cases brighter colors. He talks about the T-Rex and what we really know about it today, what velociraptors really look like and why they didn't change that in this Jurassic World film. And of course, we're talking about my favorite form of dinosaurs, sea monsters, including the coelacanth that lived during the time of the dinosaurs and is still around today. Steve's got some great stories from his new book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, where he talks about the evolution and extinction of animals like the woolly mammoth, the saber-toothed tiger, and sloths, some of which lived and survived in the time of dinosaurs. Great conversation with paleontologist Steve Brusat. Before we get to Steve, I got a few things to mention here. We still got tickets available to the Winnipeggers' 100th anniversary Shit Mix Celebration live pay-per-view June 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern. We had 100 episodes and we're blowing it out with a live rock and roll party. Celebrate with us. Lots of shenanigans, kazoo playing, imitations, games, hand-drawn artwork, which we given away to one lucky person during the show. Get your tickets at momenthouse.com slash the Winnipeggers. We're also doing an exclusive VIP after party on Zoom. That's limited to 50 fans. Come party with us. Momenthouse.com slash the Winnipeggers. 100 episodes. Who can believe it? And I'm also headed to the UK in July for the Jericho Chronicles, telling stories and doing fan Q&As. July 4th in Glasgow, Scotland at SWG. July 5th, Belfast, Ireland at Limelight. July 6th, London at The Ground. We're going to be discussing different topics every single night. Don't miss it. Tickets available now at itrtix.com. Come hang with me, telling different stories every night. Plus, you can get a VIP meet and greet, meet me, hang out, and uh, get some stuff signed and just have a great, great time. It's going to be a blast. And if you live in Canada or the States, you'll have another chance to come rock with Fozzie. Another round of dates on the Save the World Tour starting September 8th in Columbus, Ohio at the King of Clubs. FozzieRock.com has all dates and ticket information along with details on our legendary VIP meet and greets. Come rock with us this fall in the United States, Canada, also in the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Ireland, England, uh, uh, Wales, Scotland, plus we're coming back to Australia. Go to FozzyRock.com for all the tour dates for a very busy fall for Fozzie. Looking forward to seeing everybody on both sides of the pond at all of these shows and looking forward to seeing Jurassic World Dominion. So let's get to paleontologist Steve Brusat and hear about all the wonderful new creatures he has drummed up for the movie right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. I have been very interested in dinosaurs since I was a young kid. And we have Steve Broussat is here, who is a paleontologist and an expert on dinosaurs. So you, you sir, have my uh, 10-year-old dream job. <laughs> I think you had my 10-year-old dream job, you know, but, uh, but <laughs> I am one of those lucky people that gets to dig up dinosaurs for my job. It, it's an, an amazing thing to do. It never gets old. And being able to teach about dinosaurs and educate the next generation of people to do things like write books and work on movies as a consultant. I mean, it's all living the dream. And uh, 
it just never ceases to be fun. So I know how lucky I am. And, and there's really nothing I love more than talking about dinosaurs. So I'm looking forward to seeing where our chat goes. Well, it's funny because if you're a dinosaur fan, you instantly become friends with other dinosaur fans. And one of the ways that Slash, legendary guitar player, Hall of Fame guitar player, and, and I became friends was our uh, affinity for dinosaurs. So I will say for the record, I did ask Slash to join us today and he said that he's traveling so he couldn't do it but he's like thanks for the invite let me know how it goes and he knows (laughs) way more than i do i kind of bow to his greatness but when you're a dinosaur you know aficionado it does connect you instantly yeah i'm gonna tell my wife that because my wife is the biggest guns and roses fan i mean slash is like her dream guy in every way we and we love slash yeah everything about him so uh so tell slash hi slash if you're listening he le- legit loves dinosaurs and is, is is very interested so i guess my first question to you uh is how do you become a paleontologist uh, you know the only paleontologist that we really know is ross from friends and his job doesn't <laughs> seem to be as exciting as yours is so how, how did you all get to this point steve where you, you know, are consulting for Jurassic World, which we'll discuss, finding new species of dinosaurs, becoming kind of an expert in the field. It's not nothing like Ross, you know, and, and no offense <laughs> to friends. I, I was never a big fan of the show. Ross, Ross was just kind of a loser, honestly, to me. I thought he really was not the best portrayal of a paleontologist. Of course. <laughs> you know, the Jurassic Park characters are much better and much more realistic. There's a couple of routes. There's a lot of ways you can do paleontology. I got started as a teenager just through collecting fossils, just going out like in my parents' car with a map, with a rock hammer, going out, seeing what I could find. Where did you grow up? North Central Illinois. So about an hour and a half uh, south of Chicago, which as I came to learn, nobody's ever found a dinosaur in Illinois. <laughs> like They would have lived there, but there's just no rocks of the right age that have fossils. But there are much older rocks in Illinois that have fossils of clams and corals and, and ferns and these kind of things that are e- even older than the dinosaurs, like 300 million years old. So I started collecting those when I when I was a teenager. I mean, I didn't have any advanced degrees. I, I wasn't at a university, any, anything like that. So that's the wonderful thing about paleontology is that anybody can find a fossil. It's just such uh, an accessible science. So that's how I got started. And then I did decide eventually that I wanted to do this professionally, which does mean you got to go and study and do the different degrees and work your way up and do your master's and do your PhD. And, you, you know, you study a lot of biology, a lot of anatomy, a lot of geology. You need to understand the earth. You need to understand animals. You need to understand evolution. Uh, so it was about 10 years of studying, but really I learned more finding my own fossils than I did in the classroom. Once again, I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, which is the prairie. So there wasn't really a lot of fossils, but there were places you could go. And then if you go to Alberta, obviously Drumheller, which I believe is the home of Nickelback, is very (laughs) well known for having a a dinosaur museum. I know that Slash has gone to this museum. Anytime he plays Calgary, he takes the day and goes over to Drumheller, which is about a two-hour drive, to see kind of what's in store there. So certain parts of the country are more conducive to finding not just fossils, because I remember when I was a kid, fossils come in rocks, like you said, like little cellopods and these type of things, but actual dinosaur bones are found in certain areas of the country. Which ones are more prone to, to be containing these types of things? The good news is you can theoretically find dinosaur bones anywhere where there's rock of the right age or the right type. And and what I mean by that is, 
you know, dinosaurs lived from about 230 until about 66 million years ago. So if, if there's rocks that were formed during that time, you know, sand turning into sandstone, mud turning into mudstone, and that stuff buried dinosaur bones, you might find dinosaur bones there. So, you know, a big part of my job is trying to figure out what places have that kind of rock of the right age and the right type. And there are definitely parts of the world where there's more of that kind of rock. And around Drumheller out in Alberta is one of the world's prime dinosaur hunting grounds. It just was a place where there were rivers and lakes and swamps and all these environments dinosaurs loved back in the Cretaceous period. So it was easy to fossilize their bones. The same is true in places like Montana and Colorado and down in New Mexico. I'm just about to go to New Mexico in a couple of days to, to dig up dinosaur and mammal fossils. So those places are where we want to go. There's lots of rocks. It's desert. It's badlands. Those rocks are being battered by the, the wind and by the sun and the fossils are falling out. But we can still find dinosaurs even in places like Scotland. So I'm, I'm talking to you from Scotland. I live in Scotland now. I've, I've lived here for a decade. I you know, moved from the middle part of America to, to Edinburgh and Scotland, where I'm a professor at the university. You probably don't think of dinosaurs and Scotland together. You probably, I don't know what you think of. You think of whiskey, you think of William Wallace and Braveheart and Haggis and you know the great history of the country. You don't think of dinosaurs, but there are some rocks from the Jurassic period here, and we do find dinosaur bones in them. Well, see, I would beg to differ because when I think of Scotland, I think, of course, of, of, of Loch Ness and, and Nessie, yeah, which course. is fairly close to Edinburgh. As a matter of fact, that was the one time I took a little bit of a journey to Loch Ness when we had a show in Edinburgh. I rented kind of a, a little bit of a sprinter van and took eight or ten of us to Loch Ness. Did you see anything? <laughs> well, in my mind's eye, I was actually – dude, I have been obsessed, and we talked about this earlier, but with Lake Monsters since I was a kid. Yeah. Because I grew up, once again, in Canada, and uh, Lake Okanagan has Ogopogo. So going out on the lakes from a young age terrified me, and also, too, going out on, on Loch Ness, even as an adult, was a little bit terrifying. But – uh, the reason why I bring this up is not just to talk about Nessie, but also to talk about the fact that you actually discovered a, a new form of marine reptile dinosaur in Scotland. Yeah. Tell us about this and tell us kind of how it connects with, with Nessie and Loch Ness and, and the whole lore. You're absolutely right. I, you know, I kind of gave Scotland the short shrift there by saying, oh, you don't. Think yes. But it's true. You know, you think of, of these lake monsters and you think of these legends and you think about, you know, the, the what ifs, right? Like what's out there? What's actually underneath those waves, you know? Right, People exactly. Something. What what could it be? And Scotland is is prime monster hunting territory in that way. I'll tell you what, what, what I do know. Uh, I've been to Loch Ness. I've never seen a monster. But I can tell you for sure that there used to be a whole bunch of sea dragons and sea monsters that lived right here in Scotland back during the Jurassic period. This was about 170 million years ago. We find their bones, we find a lot of their bones, and these are things like plesiosaurs, the ones with the big long necks and the big fat bodies and the flippers. Yep. We have ichthyosaurs, those are the ones that, they're reptiles, but they kind of look like dolphins or like fish. They were such good swimmers, they had big long snouts, hundreds of teeth they would use to spear fish. And we found a new species of one of those a few years ago in Scotland, and we named it, we called it Yarkvara, which is uh, maybe a, a bit of a tongue twister name, but it's a, a Scottish Gaelic name, you know, the native language of the Scottish Highlands, we decided to to give honor and give respect to the people of Scotland and the Gaelic speakers up there by, through um, naming this fossil. So those types of, of creatures would live in, in the lakes or these ocean creatures? They would have lived in the oceans for sure, but some of them probably did live in lakes. There are some fossils of some of these things that are found in freshwater 
rocks, the kind of rocks that could have only formed in lakes or in ponds. So primarily they lived in the water. They would have filled kind of the same roles in the oceans back then, the same jobs in the food chain as things like sharks and killer whales and that kind of stuff today. But it, some of them probably did get it into the lakes. And this was the same time, of course, that dinosaurs were completely and utterly dominant on the land, thundering across the land, long necked dinosaurs, dinosaurs with plates on their backs, ferocious meeting dinosaurs. So, you know, it really was just a, a spectacular time in Earth history. And that's the story. And of course, you know, I'm, I got to do it. I'm going to do it at the top of the podcast so we get it out of the way. But I got to plug the books. I always got to plug the books. But sure. I did the book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, a few years ago all about dinosaur evolution. It's kind of a pop science book about dinosaurs. And then one of the reasons we're chatting, uh, and we can talk a little bit more later if you want, about mammals is because I have this new book coming out on the evolution of mammals. So woolly mammoths and saber-tooth tigers and all that. And that book called The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. Uh, and it's coming out right around the time that the new Jurassic Park film, the new Jurassic World film comes out. So we got lots of cool stuff here. And I, I'm, I'm just really excited to talk about all of it. Well, let's talk about your book, because so, you're talking about the rise and fall of mammals. Now, now, prehistoric creatures don't just contain dinosaurs. I mean, there was a lot of, as you mentioned, the woolly mammoths of the world and that sort of thing. And there's a whole plethora of amazing creatures that you discuss in this book. So kind of lead us through some of the, the species that you talk about in your book and that existed in that time frame. Chris, I'm like you. I'm a dinosaur guy, like above all. That's how I got started as a kid. Like it was T-Rex and the big meat eaters that really hooked me in. And then I became obsessed with the brontosauruses and, and all the other dinosaurs. And that's what I've mostly studied. And, and those are mostly the kind of fossils I've collected. But over the last few years, I've become more and more obsessed with fossil mammals, with the things that took over from the dinosaurs. Because that asteroid came down 66 million years ago. You know, a rock that was the size of Mount Everest smashed into the earth. The force was tremendous. It would have released more energy than a billion nuclear bombs put together. I mean, Jeez. this thing was the biggest catastrophe, the single worst day in the history of life. And the dinosaurs couldn't cope. And they were so dominant for so long. But the T-Rexes, the Triceratopses, they couldn't deal with that. And they all died out very quickly. But a few animals did make it through, and some of those animals were mammals. And I have just become utterly obsessed and fascinated with these mammals because they're the things that ultimately beat the dinosaurs. They survived when the dinosaurs didn't. Right. And come on, these are our ancestors. Like, we wouldn't be here today if we didn't have an ancestor that stared down that asteroid. So the mammals are our story, and there's so many fantastic mammals woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers. There were used to be sloths that were 10 feet tall. They could dunk a basketball. There used to be armadillos the size of Volkswagens. There were wombats in Australia that weighed over a ton, if you can imagine that. Think of something like, it looks kind of like a kangaroo that weighed over a ton. You know, and then even today, th those things are all extinct, but even today we have blue whales, the biggest animals that have ever lived. They're as big as a submarine. They're 100 feet long. They weigh 100 tons. Their babies are the size of speedboats. You know, they give birth to three-ton babies. Jeez. They dive a thousand feet deep. They are alive today with us, sharing the world with us. So for me, the more I learn about mammals, just the more spectacular they get. So again, I'll show the book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. It's just out. It's a pop science book. This is not an academic book. It's not meant for other scientists. This is meant for everybody to revel in the story of our evolutionary history, our ancestors, where we came from, and the story of the most awesome mammals ever, things like woolly mammoths and saber-tooths. And I got to call out 
cover art and art throughout the book by one of the greatest artists that draws fossils. And that's a guy named Todd Marshall. And maybe you're familiar with this work, but Todd is, is, is a rock and roll guy. He actually knows Slash. They, they knew each other. They were in the same circles in, in LA in the eighties and Slash and Todd and these guys they were all part of the rock scene. Todd is, is tremendous. I was so happy to work with him on this book. And I mean, he just brings like this rock and roll attitude to the way he does these saber tooth tigers and these mammoths and these giant sloths is just fantastic. So are you saying that there's evidence, obviously there's evidence of these giant sloths and, and, and all this sort of thing. Are, are you finding the bones of these creatures to show how big they are? And if you had armadillos that were the size of, semi-trucks or whatever that you said 10, 10 feet tall or whatever it was what was it that caused them to shrink down into the current size armadillos that we have now there used to be so many mammals that were so much bigger and grander and more in your face and no more flamboyant and more spectacular than the mammals that are alive today all of these things i've been talking about the woolly mammoths the saber-toothed tigers the big sloths and armadillos these things were alive really recently they died out only about 10,000 years ago. Mm. Our ancestors, our species, Homo sapiens, our human species, lived with these animals, interacted with these wow. animals. Wow. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Because that was always something I, I never thought that ever happened, that Homo sapiens survived with mammoths. I thought there were different periods. It's wild. So our ancestors knew these animals, interacted with them, saw them, confronted them, hunted them, would have been hunted by them. Hmm. And so it was probably in part at least because of our actions of hunting these animals, that they may have gone extinct. Also, this was the end of the Ice Age when these animals died, so the climates were changing very quickly. The world was going from a, a world covered in glaciers to one where the temperature was getting much warmer. So I think all of that stuff conspired to kill off these amazing animals, but we do find their fossils. We even find them in Illinois, where I'm from. We don't have any dinosaurs, but we do have woolly mammoths and we have saber tooths. And in places like Alaska, and up in Canada, in the Arctic, you know, a bit, bit north of where, where you're from in Winnipeg. But you can actually find the frozen mummies and carcasses of woolly mammoths. The hair is there, the skin, the internal organs, the last meals in their, their stomachs. I mean, it's just mind-boggling that you can find these things, and people do quite regularly. That's amazing, just kind of going through some of the things that you discussed and, and you know, talking about how these animals were so big and you're finding like, I, I want you to tell me about the, the, the repental mammoths, yeah. the Cretaceous mammal that <laughs> ate baby dinosaurs for breakfast as shown by his fossilized last meal in its stomach. Yeah. So you find these things in the, in the bones, you're finding the last meals and able to figure that out. You can sometimes if the fossils really well preserved, if you have a skeleton of an animal that was buried really quickly in sand or in mud, that can preserve lots of details. You can get fossil mammals with hair. You can get fossil dinosaurs with feathers. That's why we know a lot of raptor dinosaurs actually had feathers and, and wings. Hmm. And sometimes you get the last meal still in the stomach. And this mammal, Repenomammus, was a mammal that actually lived with the dinosaurs. It lived in the Cretaceous period, the same time period as T-Rex. And there's a fossil from China. It was discovered and described by some friends of mine over in China. And it has the bones of a baby dinosaur in its stomach. So this was a mammal that was about the size of a badger. It wasn't a really big mammal because mammals weren't big yet. When mammals lived with dinosaurs, the dinosaurs really kept them in their place. They never got very much bigger than, than a small dog. Uh, but this mammal happened to be one that was ferocious enough that it could actually take down and eat baby dinosaurs. And I think that really kind of 
that just goes against the story that, you know, we all think about, right? Dinosaurs ruled the world, then mammals took over. That's more or less what happened, but the mammals put up a pretty good fight. I never realized uh, that. I remember when I was a kid, I'd draw pictures of like, you know, cavemen fighting woolly mammoths. It's like, well, that never happened because they didn't exist at the same time. But now you're telling me that they are. So that's very interesting. They did. Yeah, they did. Something else that you discuss in your book is, is talking about the different species of Homo sapiens. So this is not like a black man, a white man, a Chinese guy, et cetera. This is different actual skeletal makeup of, of, of Homo sapiens. Yeah. Let's explain that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, every human alive today, all seven or eight billion, how many of us there are, we're all members of the same species. You know, you and I are members of the same species. Our hair is a bit different. Our skin's a bit different, but we're all Homo sapiens. In the past, there were dozens of different distinct species of fossil humans. Wow. Going back to about five million years ago. So actually, right now is a really weird time. It's the only time in the history of humans where there's only been one species. And there used to be things like Neanderthals. They're a great example. They were a different species. They were closely related to us, but they were kind of like um, dogs and wolves or something, let's say. You know, they're, right. they're similar, but a little bit different. But our species actually could interbreed with Neanderthals. So there are fossils Jeez. that are hybrids of different of our species and, and other species. That's another one of these mind-bending things. And I talk about it a lot, uh, you know, in, in The Rise and Reign of the Mammals in the new book about how our one species that now has conquered the world, how it came out of this rich family tree, this rich heritage of all these different ancestral species that once lived. It's amazing to me because if you're thinking about like, you know, why is somebody a giant and somebody's a little person and somebody is built differently? I mean, that could be from the different breeding of, of the different species of Homo sapiens, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah, there's genes in our gene pool that come from Neanderthals. There's genes in our gene pool that come from other species of fossil humans. So it's a few percentage points of our DNA that actually come from these other species, which is wild to think about. So maybe that does, you know, can explain some of the variation that, that we see. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, about, you mentioned a few times, being a consultant on, on Jurassic World Dominion. Let's talk about how that came about, what your job is and what you're doing on this on this movie which are very much the, the capital T-H-E, uh, authoritarian movies on dinosaurs of all the ones that I've seen. I still can't really believe that, that I've <laughs> been able to do this. It's just living one of those dreams. Right. And it's something that, it just unfolded. I mean, you know what it's like in, in the world of entertainment. You know, I, I know very little, but I know I've been very lucky that I kind of crossed paths with some of the right people. So when I, in 2018, when I published the Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, my, my first book. That was the same year the last Jurassic World film came out. And of course, it was no coincidence. We had the book published right around the time the film came out. You know, the marketing people, they were all over that, as, as you know. Right. So uh, the book came out right around the time the film came out. And, uh, you know, the book picked up a little bit of steam. And a few months later, uh, I just got an email one day from a Gmail account. The name on the email that popped up was... Colin Trevorrow. And uh, that was a name I recognized immediately because I knew Colin was the director and producer of the Jurassic World series. And so, you know, it's a Gmail to Gmail thing there. And I thought, come on, this is a, a joke, but whatever. I, I clicked on the email and it was a very brief email. And he, he said something along the lines of, 
my name's Colin, I, and I make scientifically inaccurate dinosaur films. <laughs> and, I, and, I, uh, and I just read your book, and uh, I'd love to chat more about dinosaurs. I thought, no way, like somebody is like screwing around with me. This is like, must be one of my students that's yeah. being like, you're getting a big ego, you wrote this book and all this crap. You know, somebody's just playing tricks with me. Uh, but I had my, you know, book people look into it and they, they came back a few hours later and they said, yeah, this is actually him. We've asked around and, and this is the email he uses. And, and I said, okay, whoa. So they set up a call and we chatted a few days later. Turned out to be the real Colin Trevorrow, and he's very, very nice. And he said, "Look, you know, I'm starting to write the next movie. We're going to do another one that's supposed to come out in 2021. It's been delayed now a year because of the pandemic, but right. but he said uh, I want to bring some new dinosaurs into it, and I'd love your advice. I'm going to be in Edinburgh in a few weeks with my family. They we have this big arts festival here every year, the Fringe Festival, and so Colin was coming up with his family." So um, I said, okay, let's meet up. I, and I said, I know exactly the place. I said, I'm, a, I'm a member of this whiskey club. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not an exclusive thing, really. It's like anybody who pays can be a member. But this club right. casks of whiskey from all these different distilleries around Scotland and, uh, and serves them in this bar. So I said, Colin, do you like whiskey? He said, yeah, I love whiskey. I said, let's, let's go, you know, have a couple of whiskeys and, and talk dinosaurs. Well, it turned out we had to meet at noon. And he and his family was he was going to be meeting his family again in a couple hours to go to a kids show. So he said, I don't know if whiskey is the best idea. So it's the only time I've been to this club where I had coffee and not whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) But we sat and we chatted for a few hours all about dinosaurs. Right away, he told me, I want a bunch of new dinosaurs in the film. And I want to put feathers on some of these dinosaurs. I know some of these dinosaurs really had feathers and wings. We haven't put them on the dinosaurs yet. I want to change that. And right away, you know, that got my full attention and my full respect. And for the rest of that conversation, he just made it very clear how much he knew about dinosaurs, how much he had read about them. He'd done a lot of his own research on them. He was really up to date with new discoveries. You know, he showed that he was a guy like us, you know, that loves dinosaurs. He wasn't just making this movie and cashing the check. So, So he asked me if I would like to consult on the film. And I said, Jesus Christ, this is the absolute dream. Of course, you know, anything you want, I'm on board. And so I signed up really right away. And that's how it all went down. And that's how I found myself part of this team that's putting feathers on dinosaurs on the big screen and turning the stuff that I've studied as an academic career. And, you know, I've written books about and stuff into a blockbuster film, which is just the wildest thing. So you're talking about the feathered dinosaurs, and we'll discuss that for a bit. But what, are they saying to you, hey, is this what it looked like? Is this what it acted like? And you're saying that it would eat this, it would do this. Is that kind of the consulting that you do? That's right. So I was the paleontology consultant on the film. And what that meant was I was on call for these guys, for Colin, for the guys like Kev Jenkins, who were designing the dinosaurs, for the other artists. I was on call for them to ask any questions, anything they wanted to know about dinosaurs. So just open line of communication on the phone, over email. So they would send me stuff. So sometimes they would just have a question. What do you know about this dinosaur? Yeah, what did this dinosaur eat? What did it look like? Just tell us. Other times they would show me drafts of some of the artwork they were doing when they were designing new characters and say, let's do a call. I want your feedback. I want to go through, you know, the different parts of the, the body to make sure these parts look right, that it's, you know, it looks like the colors are right, all these kind of things. Sure. So I was really, I I saw my role as as a small role, but, you know, one where it was my job to make sure that the science, what we really know about dinosaurs as real animals, as real fossils, that science was always in the ear of 
Colin and of the character designers. You know, it wasn't my job to, to come up with the dinosaur characters. It wasn't my job to write the film or have any insight into the script or the editing or anything like that. I was just on call to make sure those guys knew the science. Let's um, talk a little bit about some of the new dinosaurs, especially the feathered dinosaurs, because you're right. That is kind of a forgotten species and style of dinosaurs. And, and what are they debuting in this film that we haven't seen so far? This is what I'm most excited about. I mean, I'm so just overjoyed that hundreds of millions of people are going to see this film around the world and they're finally going to see proper feathered dinosaurs. And this is something as scientists we've known about for a few decades. You know, we we know that most dinosaurs did not look like monsters. They didn't look like giant crocodiles or giant lizards. They didn't have or at least always have scales on their, their skin. And they weren't all green colored or brown colored. We, we know that a lot of them actually had feathers, even had wings. We know this because of real fossils. There are thousands of fossils of dinosaur skeletons, big ones and small ones, meat eaters and plant eaters, that have been found with feathers on their bodies. But it's very hard to preserve feathers. And almost all of these fossils come from one place, and that's in China, where you have these volcanoes in the Cretaceous period burying entire ecosystems and just burying those dinosaurs in ash so quickly, kind of like Pompeii, like when Pompeii erupted, and it, you know, or when Mount Vesuvius erupted and it buried Pompeii and you get literally all those people, yeah. you know, you find people that were covered in ash as they were walking the dog, as they were cooking breakfast. It was that kind of thing with these dinosaurs. Now, these fossils in China were first discovered in 1996. Jurassic Park came out in 1993. So when Jurassic Park came out, nobody knew that dinosaurs had feathers. If Steven oh, wow. Spielberg tried to put feathers on the dinosaurs, he would have been laughed at, man. Like they would have, they would have booted him out of Hollywood, probably. Wow, dinosaurs that's crazy to think about that. They've they found a new whole species within the 30 years since Jurassic Park came out. Yep. And it was just bad timing, really bad timing. But what that means is, you know, we've known for a while as scientists that, look, you know, something like Velociraptor, it didn't look like what it's shown in the film. It was not covered in scales. It would not have been green. It would not have looked like a reptile. We know that the real Velociraptor had feathers all over its body and it even had wings on its arms. It had big quill pen feathers on its arms. So we've known this for a while. And but that vision hasn't made it into the Jurassic Park franchise yet. And I understand it. I mean, those dinosaurs are iconic. The first film locked in this Jurassic Park brand, yeah. you know, and it's like, why would Coca-Cola change their logo? It's so successful. They're not just going to change their logo if it's working. So Jurassic Park has a style. You know, these are movie monster dinosaurs. And it would just be weird to change them. But what Colin's vision was in this film and what I'm you know, honored to have played a small role in, in helping make it happen was that there can be new characters, new dinosaurs. OK, we're not going to change the raptors. You know, the raptors are classic, the velociraptors. We're not going to change the T-Rex. Those are classic. But we can introduce new characters and these characters can be more realistic. And the best example is this dinosaur called Pyroraptor. And that is a close cousin of Velociraptor. And it is shown in its full flamboyant glory. I mean, feathers all over its body, big wings on its arms, bright red colors. We can tell the colors, by the way, of some dinosaurs. We can actually see the colors preserved in the fossil feathers. It, it, and that blows my mind. We only discovered this about How? 10 years ago. It was a student who found this, by the way, who discovered this, which is just wild. Well, did they find a feather or what did they find? How did, how did they know what color it was? 
in feathers. Yep. So what this student is a guy named Jakob Vinther is a friend of mine. He's a, you know, a professor now, but he was a student at the time. He's a big, tall guy from Denmark. <laughs> He'd actually be a great uh, wrestling character, this guy. Um, <laughs> he was studying, of all things, fossil squid. There are fossil squid. And he was studying like the ink sacs of these squid. And he realized that there was actually like original color preserved in these fossil ink sacs. And he thought he had this great genius moment of, well, colors preserved in this fossil squid. Maybe it could be preserved in in a dinosaur feather. And he looked under really big, high-powered microscopes, and he could actually see the little bubbles that hold the pigment. And the pigment's what, you know, gives the feathers the color. So That's amazing. We know for scientific, you know, certainty with actual evidence that dinosaurs had a range of colors. They were black, white, brown. Some were red-headed ginger dinosaurs. That's amazing. Yeah. Some had shiny feathers. Like if you, you see a crow, like in the sun, like the sun hits the feathers of the crow and you get this colorful kind of shiny pattern. Some dinosaurs had feathers like that. Some dinosaurs had camouflage patterns. Some dinosaurs had stripes on their bodies. I mean, you think of like the most ridiculous, absurd, you know, costumes in the ring that you've ever seen. And I'm telling you, there's probably some dinosaurs <laughs> that were looking like some of those characters. You know? What else did you uh, introduce this in this film species wise? There's some there's a few other dinosaurs I think people are really going to like. There's one called a Therizinosaurus, and this this was one of the weirdest dinosaurs ever. This thing was really big. It was a big dinosaur. If it stood up straight, its you know its head would have gone up a couple stories into the canopy. It was a theropod dinosaur, so that's the group that uh, you know includes things like T. Rex and Velociraptor. They're mostly meat eaters, but some of them went vegetarian, and this was one of them. So it kind of changed its whole body. It got a big gut, a big belly, so it could eat lots and lots of plants. And it evolved these enormous claws on his hands, these Edward Scissorhands claws that stretched out like a meter each. Jeez. Not to like hunt or anything, just to probably hold on to the trees as it was eating. Just a weird dinosaur, but that's going to be in the film. And that had feathers too on it, by the way. Uh, there's going to be a, a new giant dinosaur, one of the biggest dinosaurs that ever lived, called Dreadnoughtus, which is a great name, named after. What a name. Ships. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine, uh, again, Ken Lacavara, who's a, a well-known paleontologist, he he discovered uh, those bones with his team uh, in Argentina. He, he, he works with Argentine scientists. A lot of the most amazing new discoveries are coming from places like China and Argentina, these enormous countries that are starting to develop a lot of new museums and universities and scientists. But Dreadnoughtus is another example. This was a dinosaur that was basically approaching the size of a Boeing 737 airplane. Oh my gosh. I mean, isn't that nuts? Like these dinosaurs, they were animals, right? Like they weren't like statues or they weren't, yeah. they were real. Like they hatched from eggs. Their eggs were tiny, by the way. Their eggs were only about the size of a softball or a grapefruit. And then they would have hatched into this tiny little baby and they would have grown to something the size of an airplane within about 40 or 50 years at most. They grew so fast. We can tell that by actually looking at the details of their bones because there's growth rings inside of bones, just like inside of a tree trunk. So you can tell how old the dinosaur was when it died. So, I mean, th these are things about dinosaurs that even just, you know, a decade, two decades ago, we had no idea. This stuff wasn't known when the first Jurassic Park came out. So what I'm excited about is a lot of this new science. It's making its way into the film. 
times, you know, it's the, and the film look, it's not a, a nature documentary. It's not the kind of thing you see on the Discovery Channel or Nat Geo. You know? Right. It is a movie. It's a blockbuster movie. It's a monster movie. It's a sci-fi movie. These are kick-ass characters, but there's good science in there. And they're based on real dinosaurs. And I'm just excited that people all over the world are going to be able to see these new dinosaurs on the big screen this summer. How about, uh, I was watching the trailer and, you know, once again, going back to the, the sea monsters, the sea dinosaurs, there's a scene where a giant, it looks, it's not an ichthyosaurus, but it's a giant yeah. ocean beast comes out and grabs a hold of the cage. What kind of a dinosaur is that? That's a thing called a mosasaur. And uh, mosasaur, this is, yeah. this is a, another one of those reptiles that lived in the oceans back then. Uh, and these things lived in the oceans in the Cretaceous period, the same time T-Rex was living. And they're, they're not true dinosaurs. They're cousins of dinosaurs. They're another group of reptiles. They were essentially lizards that supersized their bodies and went into the water. And they turned their limbs into flippers so they could swim in the water. And some of them were enormous. I mean, some of these things were pushing, you know, 50, maybe even 60 feet long. These things were absolute monstrous beasts. You know, this was before there were great white sharks. This was before there were killer whales. It was really only with the extinction of the mosasaurs that things like sharks and whales had the opportunity to evolve. So if you were back in the Cretaceous, if you were on the land, you would be running in fear of a T-Rex or a Velociraptor, but you wouldn't want to go into the water because these things would have been there. That's unbelievable to think about that. Like, how is there room for every creature? You know, there are so many big monsters roaming around. I know. This was an age of monsters back then, you know, and really, and you know, coming back to the mammals as well. I mean, today is kind of abnormal. We don't have a lot of really giant animals, except for things like blue whales, you know, which we should be very grateful still exist they're very endangered we need to conserve them make sure we protect them right but by and large there used to be many things that were just much 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 bigger and i think ultimately it's hard for humans to coexist with really big things because we like to hunt them because they're yeah. quick and easy and you know very satisfying meals for us for our families for our tribes so i do think unfortunately that's part of the problem what was the best advice you gave as the consultant? Was there something that, that changed completely because you were there? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, my role, I, I'm not going to claim credit for more than I, I did. You know, I was there in a supporting role. I was not making the Hollywood magic. Colin, the character designers like Kev Jenkins, and of course, the actors. You have Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum and Sam Neill and Chris Pratt and Bryce Howard and Omar C and all these amazing actors. They're the ones that are the genius behind us. But, you know, the small role I played, I'm thankful I was able to do it. I can't legitimately say I rescued something. I caused, you know, that I made the dinosaurs better. <laughs> I saved them from some big, big mistake. I think my role was really to make sure, number one, the feathers, making sure that those came across realistic. I took a lot of pride in that. I'm, that's not saying that these dinosaurs are perfectly in line with every detail we know from fossils, because that's not going to happen with the monster movie. But, you know, I wanted those feathers to be realistic. And I knew a lot of people would be watching the film. They would have never seen a feathered dinosaur. You know, this isn't hasn't really reached the pop culture kind of level yet that dinosaurs have feathers. A lot of young kids know this, but I, I still think, you know, a lot of people just don't realize that. So I knew that there'd be millions of people around the world watching this film and going, what the hell is that thing? This is a dinosaur with wings on it? Like, that can't be 
real. So I wanted to make sure that those feathers and wings, they were realistic. They didn't come across as ridiculous. It didn't, you know, they didn't come across as like, a, you know, some costume that, you know, yeah. <laughs> Shawn Michaels or, right. you know, Randy Savage or Chris Jericho or whoever would wear in the ring. I, you know, I wanted to make <laughs> sure that people wouldn't laugh at them, that people wouldn't automatically doubt them, that people would look at them and learn something and want to learn more. The other thing, which is just a funny story, it's a tiny, tiny detail, but I was sitting here, actually here, just at home one day, you know, at my desk here, in my little office here at home, which has become, you know, the oasis during COVID, and uh, especially as we have a, a two and a half year old. But I was sitting here just in my office, just writing. I think I was actually writing part of the mammal book. And um, I got a phone call, Colin Trevor, okay. Uh, hey, Colin, what's up? And he says, hey, Steve, um, I'm here on the set. I think he said it was with Chris Pratt and uh, and he said, we're just about to have a line where Chris says the name of this dinosaur and how we pronounce it right now is going to dictate how we have to pronounce it for the whole rest of the movie. Right, right, right. And he said, Steve, how the hell do you pronounce this dinosaur? <laughs> and then and it's this dinosaur from South America, a predator that's actually the same size, maybe even a little bit bigger than T-Rex, a thing called Giganotosaurus. And so I had to tell Colin, and this was a, you know, I felt so bad doing this because I, I it comes across as really elitist and very academic, and I hate that. But I had to say, well, actually, Colin, there's two ways to pronounce this dinosaur. <laughs> a lot of the American crowd will say it one way. A lot of the South American crowd will say it another. And I said, you can call it Giganotosaurus. You could call it Giganotosaurus. I said, do whatever sounds better uh, coming out of, you know, the actor's mouth. So that was just really funny. That was just like a moment that just made me laugh, like getting this phone call, sitting, just doing my academic work, writing my book. And, you know, Colin calling me up saying I'm on the set. I need, I need your help immediately. And, I, you know, I'll just I'll just remember that as a fun moment. Talk a little bit, uh, kind of a little bit of a, of, a, of a checklist here for dinosaurs, kind of a little bit of an information panel here. So how many different species of dinosaurs do we know of? We know right now of probably between about 1,500 or 2,000 wow. species. And it's kind of funny, you know, I don't have a list of every single one. I don't even know if that list exists. And of course, different scientists debate about is this a real species or is this just a baby of another species or have, is there enough evidence that this is a species? There's a lot of nerdy academic debate. So there's not a single set number, but it's somewhere in that 1500 to 2000 range. What's crazy is that we're finding more and more dinosaurs than ever before right now as a community of paleontologists. And somewhere around the world, somebody is finding a new species of dinosaur on average once every single week these days. Wow. So that's 50 some new species every year. And I'm not talking about a new fossil or new skeleton. I mean, a totally new species, a totally new type of dinosaur that we never knew existed. And this has been going on for about a decade now. So just in the last 10 years or so, there have been like 500 new species of dinosaur. And it's really easy to understand why. It's because more people are looking than ever before. Interesting. It used to be people in Canada, in America, in Britain, you know, that were paleontologists. There weren't that many jobs. It was mostly at, you know, these distinguished posh universities <laughs> like the one I teach at now. <laughs> you know, and there weren't many other people. Uh, now the field is just expanded. And it's so accessible to people. And so many young people are studying dinosaurs, going out, finding their own dinosaurs all over the world. 
And it is places like China and Argentina and Brazil and South Africa and Mongolia, you know, these enormous countries that are developing so quickly where so many young people are going out, really seeking their fortune, their fortune being new dinosaurs and, you know, a career in science, a career as a dinosaur hunter. And a lot of it is because of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. You know, that film franchise, that brought dinosaurs everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everywhere around the world, people saw that film. And I have a lot of colleagues who are scientists like me in their 30s or in their early 40s or even ones that are younger in their 20s, but people from all over the world that say it was Jurassic Park watching that as a kid that got them into science. And that is one of the reasons why you know, I treat the opportunity of being the consultant on the film with a lot of respect and a lot of reverence because I know that so many people get inspired by these movies. It's amazing. Uh, and how many species have you found? I've named probably about 20 or so, maybe. Wow. Different dinosaurs, sea monsters, mammals. You know, these are not all things I found myself. They're not all things where I've gone out to some desert and found the bones. You know, that's not really how paleontology works. You don't find stuff on your own. You're always part of teams. There's no way somebody can just go find like a brontosaurus and dig it up themselves. It would take a life. Shovel. So we're all, yeah, <laughs> big shovel, dynamite, yeah. you know, but, but we're always working with big teams. And I have a great team of students who, who work with me, who, who I'm very fortunate to train and to mentor. I have a lot of just wonderful colleagues around the world. And I've been parts of lots of teams. Some teams I've been a leader on, other teams I've been a team member on, but we've gone to amazing places. We've looked for fossils all over Europe. We've looked for fossils and Brazil. We've looked for fossils in China. We've looked for fossils, of course, in North America, like in New Mexico, where I'll be going in a few days. So, you know, by the time this airs, who knows, we'll have probably found more fossils. <laughs> so you said that you've named 20. So why do you have the distinction of naming them? Are you kind of the point man on the team? Yeah, well, we, we also name them usually as teams. You know, it's di different groups of people come together. And, and the way you name these things, there's a, a standard procedure in science that you have to write up a description. You basically write up an article on what you have. You describe the fossils you have. You do some illustrations. And you have to make it clear. You have to make an argument that the fossil you have is different than anything that's ever been found before whether it's bigger, whether it has an extra horn on his head, whatever it is. So you just have to write that out in what's called a scientific paper. It's really just like an article, you know, right. and then you propose a new name and that goes out to review. You know, other scientists will look at it. You submit it to publication to a research journal and then other scientists assess it. And eventually it's published. You get some feedback on it. You change it if you have to, but you get this published. That's the way that science works. You know, there's just always this quest to to impress your peers and, and convince your peers you have something new. Once you do that, that's how you name something new. So the process really is you, you might find that fossil yourself. You may go out to the desert and dig up a skeleton and you've never seen anything like it before. So this is something new. We're going to name it. Other times you might be in a museum looking at collections, things that were found decades ago, even a century ago that were put in a drawer, that were put in a safe, that were put in a case that people haven't really scrutinized recently. And you realize that, wait a minute, there's something new here. So a lot of our discoveries actually come from museums. And that shows why museums are so important, because not only do museums exhibit fossils that the public can go see and kids can get inspired by, but museums have collections behind the scenes that keep fossils safe so researchers can study them. And the museum in Drumheller, the Royal Terrell Museum, 
is one of the world's best museums. It's incredible. Like the exhibits are second to none, but the exhibits are nothing. Like probably like 0.001% of their fossils are on display. The real joy is going into the storerooms in that museum and in most museums, because it is just shelf after shelf, wall after wall, cabinet after cabinet of dinosaur bones. And for somebody like me, that is like the kid in a toy store or a kid on Christmas morning. It is just the most exhilarating thing. And if you haven't done it, you should go out there, you know, maybe with Slash, maybe whatever, (laughs) just go out and tell the museum you want to see behind the scenes. And I'm sure they'd love to show you. Give me some of the names that that you've given to some of these species. So we talked about this thing, Yarkvara, earlier, which is the marine reptile, the sea monster from Skye. We just named another one a few months ago, also from the Isle of Skye in Scotland. And this is a pterodactyl, one of those flying reptiles. And this one we call Yarkskianach. That's another Scottish Gaelic name. So that's the most recent one that, that we named and described. That was actually a fossil that we found. I led a team that went out to the Isle of Skye and we found this pterodactyl. Actually, one of our students, Amelia Penny is her name. She found the, the head of this pterodactyl oh eroding out of the rocks, poking out. It was unbelievable. A student, you know, making this discovery. Amazing. And so we had to cut this thing out with diamond tip saws. The tide was rising. We had to rescue this thing from the, the rising tide of the rain. It was crazy, exhilarating, but that's the most recent one. I've also named and described a lot of tyrannosaurs. I love T-Rex. I study the evolution of tyrannosaurs, the family tree of tyrannosaurs. I want to understand how did T-Rex become so big. So I've described a lot of cousins of T-Rex, things like Pinocchio Rex. This is the, the nickname, the scientific name is Chongosaurus, but you can kind of see from me pronouncing that, that we needed a nickname. <laughs> this is one from China. It's basically a T-Rex with a really long nose, which is why we called it Pinocchio. And there's other tyrannosaurs that I've named as well. Things, uh, a recent one called Suska Tyrannus that I was part of the team that named this. This was a little ancestor of T-Rex. It was just the size of a dog, if you can believe that. You know, T-Rex was the size of a bus. Its ancestors are the size of dogs. And then, you know, we've, we've named a lot of, of mammals, too. So circling back to the mammals in, in the book. And, of course, you know, I'm in full marketing mode. Sorry, I got to do it. <laughs> um, but in the rise and rain of the mammals, I'll show you a picture. There's a real, another really cool story that we were in New Mexico a few years ago. And another student, Carissa Raymond is her name. That's a, a photo of Carissa there with, with her supervisor. She was out. She had just finished her freshman year of college in, in Nebraska. And uh, she came out with uh, her supervisor because she did so well in her geology class that he invited her out to help collect fossils with the team. You know, it's a huge privilege as a first year student to do this. And so what does she do? She's never been out collecting fossils before. A few days into the trip, she finds this thing up here. And that's part of the skull. You can see these big, shiny things, I think, that kind of look like Lego bricks. And those are teeth. Mm. And we have a lot of the skull and part of the skeleton. And this thing turned out to be a totally new species of mammal. And it was a mammal that was about the size of a beaver. So we called it the primeval beaver. That's the nickname we gave it, just being kind of silly and kind of stupid. Right. Uh, the technical name is Kimbatopsilus because there's a the part of New Mexico it was found in is a place called Kimbato, which is a an area where Nav- the Navajo people used to live. It means Sparrowhawk Spring in Navajo. So we gave it the formal name to honor the Navajos. But anyway, this new species of mammal, the size of a beaver, this thing was living within at most two or 300,000 years after the asteroid hit and wiped out the dinosaurs. This mammal is one of those mammals that made it through the carnage of the asteroid and then had this new world on the other side. So this mammal was one of the forebears of us and we found its 
fossils. Nobody had ever found this before. It was one of our students on the team that found it that I think more than anything goes to show anybody can find a fossil. You don't need your advanced degrees. You don't need to be a professor. You don't, you know, some of the best discoveries are made by students. And I just love stories like these. So I try to tell stories like that in, in the rise and reign of the mammals in the book. I tell a lot of stories like that about dinosaurs in, in the rise and fall of the dinosaurs book. And I'm always just loving trying to give as much, you know, respect and as much boosting to all the great people I've worked with, the mentors I've had, and just and the students now. I mean, the students, again, they find the best stuff and they do all the hard work. So I'm a very lucky professor and, and supervisor. When you're talking about fossils, I mean, you go to the New York Museum of History, there's, I believe it's a brontosaurus in there, it's pretty full, uh, and they actually have names. What are the best fossils that exist as far as, I guess, fully formed dinosaurs, shall we say? My favorite is Sue at the Field Museum in Chicago. Sue is a very famous fossil. It's a nickname, of course. And Sue is, is a T-Rex. It's a skeleton of a T-Rex. And Sue is called Sue because it was discovered by a paleontologist named Sue Hendrickson back in, in 1990 out in South Dakota. And it's about 90% complete Jeez. or so. They're like almost every bone is there. This thing is 66 million years old. They have something 66 million years old where almost all the bones are there. So this is like the quintessential T-Rex fossil. And the Field Museum acquired this fossil when I was a teenager, right around the time I was getting interested in dinosaurs. They put it on display in the year 2000. I was 16 years old, you know, living out in the cornfields, close enough to Chicago to feel the pull of the big city, far enough away that the big city was still exotic. And uh, that dinosaur, I mean, it just wrote me in. So I dragged my family to the Field Museum as much as I could. And that dinosaur just became very, very special. And it's now known all around the world, the best example of a T-Rex. Uh, and we're very lucky to have it in Chicago. What is the, What was the lifespan be for a T-Rex, shall we say? Or what's the longest that a dinosaur would live? What do you think? I'm curious. What do you think if you had to guess? Well, you mentioned 40 or 50 years for a, for a T-Rex or whatever it was to get to full size. So I would say at least that long, I don't know, 60 years, 70 years. Yeah. You know, people used to think, like, why did dinosaurs get so big? How were they able to get so big? How do you get these dinosaurs the size of airplanes, you know, the size of buses? And, and one idea that people used to think was that they grew a little bit every single year, kind of like an iguana or a crocodile. And they just grew and grew and grew, and, and they lived hundreds of years. So by the end of those, you know, 200 years or whatever, they would be huge. But we now know that's not the case because we can cut open the bones, we can count the growth rings inside the bones, just like with tree trunks. And the shocking thing about T-Rex, so I mentioned earlier that some of these long neck dinosaurs, the ones that were the size of jet planes, they 40, 50, 60 years maybe. T-Rex, you know, the size of a city bus, nobody has ever found a fossil with more than 30 growth rings inside the bones. So every T-Rex we know about was born grew into an animal the size of a bus, enjoyed its life or didn't enjoy its life. It was a rough and tumble life, <laughs> but then died before it was 30. Wow. So James Dean of dinosaurs, we'd say, you know, live fast, die young. That was T-Rex. That was shocking. So T-Rex, when it was a teenager, for about 10 years of its life, it grew so fast that it put on about five pounds of weight every single day. That's how it bulked up from a baby that was the size of a tiny little lizard or something into something the size of a bus. That's unbelievable. So was, was T-Rex the most dangerous of the dinosaurs or was there something even more 
I think T-Rex really holds the crown. T-Rex is my favorite dinosaur. I know everybody says that, and pe- people often think I'm going to give some hipster answers. Like, let's ask the paleontologist what <laughs> his favorite dinosaur is, and it's going to be something that's like 30 letters long and that's unpronounceable. But no, not for me. For me, I'm a T-Rex guy. I love T-Rex. To me, T-Rex deserves all the hyperbole, all the hype. This was an otherworldly animal, just an alien creature. There's nothing alive like it today. It's one of the marvels of nature. You know, this thing really was, and I keep saying it, it was the size of a city bus. It would have been about 40 feet long. It would have weighed seven or eight tons. You know, it weighed more than an elephant. How high How high would it go? It, and it would have been high. So the hips, because it walked, you know, only on its hind legs, but it had its, its tail kind of balancing behind it like a seesaw. So really the height would be the height of the hips. But we're talking like basketball hoop, you know, height for the hips. Wow. And the head, the head was the size of a bathtub. I could fit inside its jaws. You probably couldn't, but I could. <laughs> and there were about 50 teeth in, in the skull. Each one was the size and the shape of a banana. This thing crushed the bones of its prey. People have found fossilized dinosaur dung, fossilized dinosaur shit, T-Rex shit, full of bones. Wow. <laughs> and those bones are big chunks that the T-Rex has just gouged out of its prey. Amazing animal. But also it has then these tiny little arms, which are no bigger than my arms. You know, it's just, it's fierce. It's hyperbolic, but it's also a little bit funny. It's endearing. It makes you want to look at it. T-Rex is a spectacle. It's scary, but it's approachable. I think in many ways, T-Rex is a professional wrestler. (laughs) I got to (laughs) say. Last couple of things for you, Steve. It's one of my all-time favorite stories. It happened probably about 60 years ago or so, 70 years ago. It, of course, talking about the coelacanth of the, the the fish, the prehistoric fish that was caught off the coast of wherever it was caught that was believed to have been extinct for a million years or whatever it was, and some fisherman catches one. And then over the course of the next 10 years, they catch about another dozen of them. Nobody expected them to be alive, and it proved that they were Ocean, 90% of the, of the planet is water. That's why I'm kind of even more obsessed with the, you know, the plesiosaurs and the ichthyosauruses and, and you know, the, those sort of things. Yeah. Could there be more species like the coelacanth that we don't know about that's just going to appear at some point? Because if anyone says, oh, they don't exist, we literally have proof that a prehistoric creature was found yeah. in the modern era within our lifetimes, or at least our parents' lifetimes. Absolutely. I'm sure there is stuff that is still lurking in the deep ocean that no scientist has ever seen, that no fisherman has ever seen, that's never washed up on any shore, at least for anybody to realize. There's got to be, because as you say, the ocean is vast. It covers so much of the earth and the ocean is deep. And there's all kinds of life forms that are adapted for living in those depths. And you're totally right. The coelacanth story, I love it. When I teach, I teach a, a first year course, like a freshman level course in Edinburgh about the history of life. And I tell the story of the coelacanth. Because I think it's stunning. You know, there's a lot of fossil coelacanths. They were very common during the time of dinosaurs. Then they disappear from the fossil record. You don't find them anymore as fossils. Basically, like the end of the Cretaceous, like 66 million years ago, they disappear. Everybody thought they died. They died when the dinosaurs died. And then lo and behold, as you say, like within the last century, this weird fish comes up in a fishing net (laughs) off the coast of South Africa. The fisherman hadn't seen it before. He takes it to the museum. They'd never seen it before, but it rings a bell. It kind of looks like some fossil somebody remembered seeing. And they started to put the pieces together and said, holy crap, this thing is a coelacanth. 
we thought these things had been extinct for tens of millions of years. And people now find them, but they're still rare. You know, it's not like we find coelacanths a lot of times in fishing nets anymore. There must be a bunch of them that are living down there, but we hardly ever encounter them. So who knows what else is down there? And as a scientist, the thing that I always tell people and I always remind myself, too, is, you know, never stop exploring. We don't know what's out there, whether it's stuff that's fossils that we find in the rocks, you know, new species of dinosaurs, of mammals, whatever, or whether it's stuff that's still living on the Earth today. The Earth is a huge place. We've only explored really a fraction of it. So let's, you know, keep that adventure going because there's a whole lot more to be found. Last question for you. Let's combine a couple movies here. I get you Dr. Emmett Brown's uh, Time Machine DeLorean for Back to the Future. What era would you go back to and what would you want to see? Oh, you know, (laughs) wow. I mean, there's so many dinosaurs I'd want to see. There's so many fossil mammals I would want to see. What I would want to do, and, and this might sound a little bit weird, I would want to go to a place where we know nothing. And it's kind of special, I think, maybe just because of where I grew up and how I've moved so far around the world now to, you know, pursue this dream of being a paleontologist. But I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm from Illinois, love my home state, you know, but I I just, I hate it that nobody's ever found a dinosaur there. It's one of my biggest dreams as a scientist to one day go back home and find a dinosaur bone, but there's just not really the rocks to look in, you know. We have cornfields and soybean fields and all that. We don't have a lot of rocks. Anyway, it means we don't know, right? Illinois was dry land during most of the time of dinosaurs, so surely dinosaurs would have lived there, but we've never found even a single bone, a single tooth, nothing. So I would want to take my time machine back to uh, Cretaceous Chicago, let's say, (laughs) and see what was there, because we have no idea. So that's my answer to that question. That's a great answer, man. That is a great answer. And this has been a great chat, man. I've really enjoyed this, and uh, it's very, very cool to find somebody who's so knowledgeable about this and, and consulting with Jurassic world and all those sorts of things, man. So I'm glad, I'm glad you reached out to me. Uh, if that's exactly what happened, right? Yeah. So this has been great, man. Yeah. I know a few years ago, you and slash were talking on the podcast about the, the Yark bar. That's right. And I, you know, and some, I think my wife caught wind of this again, because my wife is the biggest. Slash in the world. Right. That's it. This has been a long time coming. Yeah, it's like Slash is talking about your dinosaur with Chris Jericho. I said, what the hell? <laughs> and so that's how we connected. And back, this was, I don't know, like three years ago, maybe. So we got to do this. We got to have a chat. And then, you know, global events have happened. <laughs> and we had our kid and everything. But I'm so happy to, to sync up. You love dinosaurs as much as I do. It's just, you know, kindred spirit here. And I know a lot of people listening. I'm sure you love dinosaurs, too. So keep in touch. Again, I have, you know, the new book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, coming out. And the Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, my first book, came out a couple of years ago. Maybe those are of interest to you guys. Certainly all you guys are going to love Jurassic World. You know, it's easy to find me online on Twitter and stuff. So keep in touch, everybody. I love talking dinosaurs and I love just connecting with other people like me who share this fascination with the, with the fossil past. Thank you, Steve. It was amazing, man. All right. Cheers, Chris. I got to go down. It's now uh, dinner time for our toddlers. So, uh, dinner and bedtime. So got to do it. Best of luck to you and, and good luck with everything you're doing. And I'm a big fan. We'll keep in touch and uh, have a good rest of the summer. You got some raptors on the Barbie down there for dinner? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what's for dinner. Thanks, brother. All Take right. care, man. Yep. Cheers, buddy. Right. Yep. Bye.